Welcome back to the Breakwater Podcast. You're listening to episode six in our seven episode series with Sandy. Today is all about addiction and the debate on whether it is a brain disease or a choice and how that distinction affects treatment and recovery. We can't wait to hear your feedback on this one. So leave us a comment wherever you're listening or find us on social media at Breakwater Coalition. Sandy is up next. Sandy, welcome back to the podcast. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me back. Of course. We are doing episode six of your seven episode series. We're nearly there. It's crazy. It went fast. Sure did. And today we're talking about addiction and the difference between theories of addiction is a disease or addiction is a choice. So on that note, is addiction a disease or a choice? Well, I believe that it's a disease. Some will say it's a disease of choice because it affects the brain, which is where our choice and our decision-making comes from. I know many people who still believe that it's a choice. Um, The biggest, I guess, factors in talking about it is the idea that if we motivated someone enough or had a big enough threat, then they would stop choosing drugs and alcohol. And time and time again, as society, as family members, as the addict or the alcoholic, those things are tried and fail, right? We have such a high incarceration rate because of the punishment that oftentimes goes along with addiction because of the behaviors And if you, and I think you have had um, people share their story on here. Yes. And they probably have said, there's no amount of punishment that would have caused me to stop the behavior. Exactly. Like maybe momentarily, like in that moment, you know, if someone's putting a gun to your head and says, don't drink, in that moment, you might be able to control it, but it's not going to be a long-term solution to it. So that's the choice theory of it. The disease model talks about, and there are brain scans that show these things, but it talks about, it's the idea that any disease has to have some components to it. And one of them is that an organ needs to be involved. And then there's some type of defect and symptoms. So if you look at diabetes, the organ, of course, is the pancreas. And then there's a defect of the organ. And there's symptoms that go along with that defect, which leads, of course, people to know that they're diabetic and, you know, that they're not producing insulin and so forth. Well, with addiction and alcoholism, the organs, the brain. So there's a defect in the brain. And it results in a bunch of symptoms. Unfortunately, many of those symptoms compromise people's value system. And they end up behaving in a way that they normally wouldn't behave. 
which is where I think it becomes difficult for people to recognize it as a disease and not a choice or a moral failing. So, and we talked about that a little bit when we did our episode on MAT or medication assisted treatment with doctors Lanou and Dr. Smiltnik and the kind of comparison to diabetes of there is an organ that is malfunctioning. There is medication that can treat or um, help mitigate that malfunctioning. Um, and it's just a different class or a different type of medication. And it's really the social context around that malfunction or that medication that makes it either totally acceptable everyday medical practice or kind of like you go in the corner, I don't want to know about it, see about it, hear about it, anything. So true. And so, I think that that's important to note that it has so much to do with the social impression or understanding or acceptance of what that medication assistance treatment looks like and and how other people recognize it or don't recognize it or judge or or not even within the recovery community but we could even probably do a podcast on that Uh, yeah we could but I think it's important for people to hear that the disease of addiction and alcoholism chemical dependency substance use disorder I mean they're all really interchangeable But it stands alone. It stands alone in the diagnosis of it, the symptoms of it, the treatment of it. And sometimes loved ones, and I shouldn't even say loved ones, really anyone. Sometimes people believe it's, well, my my person is using because they struggle with sleep. They needed to sleep or they needed to get rid of pain or discomfort that maybe they have from injury or so forth. Or they use because they're depressed or they have bipolar and that's why they use. And in reality, when you look at right the organ, the defect, the symptoms, it stands alone. And so there are millions of people who have addiction that don't have mental illness, a major mental illness. And there are millions that have mental illness that don't suffer from addiction. One addiction isn't a causal disease. It's not this idea that this happened to you and that's why you're an addict. Gotcha. So You're saying addiction is a disease, not a choice. What is the proof that it's a disease versus a choice? You talked a little bit about brain scans, but can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. So basically what it comes down to is all of us in our brain have a reward center. And our reward center is going to be the dopamine that's released. So we do something and we get a better than expected result, we're going to have a flood of dopamine in our brain. So that surge is even greater when we put drugs into our system. It's greater than food, sex, water, any of the other survival pieces in our survival part of our brain. 
So over the course of time, drugs kind of go up to the number one spot of the hierarchy of needs. And it no longer is, I like this. It becomes, I need this. I need this to live. I need this to survive. It becomes higher than any other survival message that our brain gives. So when our dopamine comes from the reward center, so the mid part of our brain, it sends dopamine to the frontal part of our brain. And then the front part of our brain the frontal cortex sends glutamate, another chemical, back down to the reward center. And that's how our brains keep us balanced. So the glutamate is going to look at keeping us at a steady balance. It's kind of like when we get a virus or some type of infection, our temperature goes up. We know we have an infection. Our body fights it to get us back to is considered kind of that homeostasis of balance, which is for most people 98.6 or whatever. So that has to do with glutamate trying to keep that balance in our brain. Well, what happens then is that all these pathways pathways are starting to be created in our brains. So they get deeper and deeper and more pronounced. And so eventually, the only way for us to feel that reward is to use that substance. So things that normally would be pleasurable, be it cake or going for a hike or going to Disney World or whatever it may be, those things are no longer pleasurable for the addict or the alcoholic. Because of those new pathways that have developed and are more responsive at that point. And exactly. And it doesn't have that big a big surge of dopamine like using substances do. So this is like making me think back, you know, like you said, we've had several people come on this podcast and kind of share their experience of, you know, when they first started using substances and how it progressed from there and when it changed from this kind of social thing to a much more personal and disordered relationship with the substance and they're using on their own and that's their, you know, that's what their goal is when they wake up and the last thing they think about when they go to bed and everything else is secondary or tertiary or just not Mm -hmm. even on their radar anymore. And I've been talking a little bit lately. So through COVID, we've seen a change in the language when you talk about substance use prevention, specifically with youth, where traditionally it's kids get curious, they go out, they use, they want to have fun. It makes them feel good. It enhances the good. But going, bringing it back a little bit to the, it's a disease, there's a disordered organ or an organ that is failing in some way. And somebody is using substances to feel less bad, right? So they have all these symptoms and the symptoms could be a wide variety of things, including depression or or something like that, or not sleeping or high anxiety. And so they, they use this substance to feel less bad, 
that then goes to develop those alternate pathways you're talking about and becomes the most excitatory thing for the brain. So the drive is then to keep using it, which makes it nearly impossible to make a choice to not use it. Correct. So as you know, and probably many of our listeners know, I worked in residential treatment for 15 plus years. And oftentimes the clients would present with a lot of shame, guilt, self-blame that this is all my fault. They're like, if I never would have tried alcohol or drugs, or I should have known better because I grew up in a home that had active addiction or alcoholism, and I was going to be different. How did I end up here? And what is important for people to understand, and I think for me, it goes back to why it's not a choice, that when the young kids, right, we're talking a little bit about the youth, when young kids go and experiment, their intention is to do just that, right? They want to see if it's going to make them feel better or get rid of the depression or because their friends are doing it. So they have these reasons behind it. They're not making a decision to one day become an addict or an alcoholic. Yeah. In that moment, they're choosing to experiment. So then for some people, they realize, oh my gosh, this is the best thing ever. Like I've never felt more normal. This is like my thing. And they fall in love with the substance. And some people it takes time, right? So it progresses over time. And we know that of the illness, it progresses over time. And it's important for people to know that the addiction and the alcoholism eventually becomes a need in that mid part of the brain. And we don't know when that's going to change. We don't know when the brain chemistry is going to need turn it, you know, and kind of put it in that hierarchy where of survival, where it has to have it in order to survive, to live. And what I use, cause I'm a visual person. What I use is kind of like, a little man in my head, it's like a little man who is standing by a water dam and he has the lever to either close the dam or open the dam. And for people who struggle with addiction, they no longer have that little man who has the ability to shut it off. The lever's broken. So once someone's brain chemistry changes to the point of, I need this to survive, They don't get to go back to social using or just having a glass of wine with dinner. It doesn't work that way because of cell memory. Our brains, excuse me, our brains have cells that remember what it was like. It's why when someone may have a period of abstinence from a substance, when they relapse or go back to using, they relapse where they left off typically or worse because we know that this disease is progressive and it will always progress. And so the cell memory is what brings people back to this is how much I can use. 
which is dangerous. And that's, is that part of the reason why when somebody does relapse, the incidence of overdoses increase? Absolutely. So there are how many areas of the brain that malfunction or can malfunction? So the latest research is going to tell you that there's three main areas of the brain that malfunction when you're talking about addiction. And it kind of ties into the whole choice theory piece of it and why addiction and chemical dependency are looked at differently than other illnesses. So the first part is going to be the orbital frontal cortex in the front part of our brain that determine it's kind of like the steering of the decision making in our brain. So that malfunctions and that is where we put value on things. It is oftentimes, and I've heard so many people say, if your kids meant enough to you, you would stop using. If this marriage meant enough to you or this job, and for someone who is active in addiction, they don't have the ability to place value on those things because of the way the brain is malfunctioning. The second part is going to be the anterior cingulate cortex, which is where we get our social cues. And I know you and I, as well as a lot of people who are part of like the overdose fatality review, we have talked numerous times about connection and community and how we can provide that and how crucial that is. And when we lose our social cues... We don't have the ability to process the harm we're doing to other people because we're not seeing the, the cues of how life is so different. And then the third part is going to be the insular cortex, which is our self-awareness. So when our self-awareness is what ties our behavior to our consciousness. So when that part of the brain isn't functioning properly, of course, we're going to lose insight to harm, going against our value system, the relationship damaging. So they really look at those three pieces in the frontal part of our brain as really the areas that are malfunctioning. And keep in mind that with the, with the illness being part of our survival when our bodies are in survival, the other parts of our brain slow down functioning level. So it's going to slow down the functioning level, and then we have these parts of the brain that are misfiring on top of it. And there have been tons of research and brain scans and um, imaging that has taken place in regards to the different parts of the brain and how they fire up or don't fire up in relation to substances. And part of what I want to make sure to point out is that some people struggle with this idea of, well, just stop the substance that keeps getting me in trouble, right? I'm going to stop drinking, but I'm going to keep smoking pot, or I'm going to stop doing cocaine, but I'm still going to keep alcohol or whatever negotiation they're trying 
And one of the things that is important to note is because it is a disease of the dopamine, right? It's the dopamine, dopamine surge that we are wanting. So even though different chemicals are going to physically have different effects on us, the illness, the brain in and of itself just wants that altered state, the surge of dopamine. So it's the idea of if you think of a football team and every player on that football team has different responsibilities, but the team doesn't function without the players, right? So if you look at that football team, they have different responsibilities. It's the same with drugs and alcohol. So you put them all on the same team and recognize they may function differently within each person, but they're still on the team. Yeah. And it's, I'm loving this conversation because it's one of those things where like you start pulling the thread and it just keeps coming and coming and coming. And this is connected to that and the elbows connected to the wrist bone kind of thing. Right. And the analogy of it's all on the same team. I've heard people when they're sharing their story, talk about that too, of like, of like, if I could drink and then not do cocaine, I would be totally fine. Mm -hmm. But when you really look at the nature of substances in general, they lower your inhibitions, right? So maybe alcohol isn't what you view as the primary cause of all of the problems, but having that alcohol creates that same effect in the brain. It lowers your inhibitions, which makes it more likely than that you will also do other things given the opportunity to do those things as well. Correct. And it goes back to then, not only that, but then the cell memory on top of it. So you may be able to say, well, I'm just going to drink and I'm not going to do cocaine. So you try it and your brain remembers, oh, this is okay, but it'd be really good if I could have the cocaine too. And so then the craving piece comes into it. And one of the things as far as the choice versus the versus the disease model is this idea that there are cravings that happen and cravings are unique to it being an illness. The, the addict or the alcoholic may be threatened well enough to maybe not do the alcohol or drugs at that moment, but they don't have the ability to not crave the substance. And that's a big factor I think oftentimes gets overlooked when people are talking about this illness. No one cannot crave. And it's not like you and I crave chocolate. Like this is a complete obsessive thinking, can't get it out of my mind. I need to have it in order to survive type of thinking. And that is misery for an addict or an alcoholic. Yeah, I've I've my I think biggest issue with the choice theory, right, is you hear people who maybe are uninformed or don't know or just choose to believe the choice theory talk about people who struggle with substance use and addiction, like they're, it's a disease of weak will, right? Like it's not a brain disease or disorder. They have weak will or poor moral code or just 
choose this specific lifestyle, right? Which the whole weak-willed piece of it, having had the opportunity to talk to so many people in recovery, especially long-term recovery over the last couple of years, I don't think that I know many people who are at that level of strength to wake up every day and choose to be sober and walk through this life where it's almost expected that you are doing something, whether it's, I mean, we're in Wisconsin, right? So um, alcohol is the one substance you have to explain why you're not using on almost a daily basis in some areas. So the, I, I, yeah, I don't think that I know many people who have more mental strength than people in recovery. Oh, absolutely. I say it all the time. Addicts and alcoholics are the most resilient, creative, talented people I know. And I, one of the things that I think is so important to also look at is recovery for those that uh, obtain recovery is such a gift. People who don't have this illness don't usually slow down long enough to really evaluate their life and their strengths and their character defects and what they want and their true value system. And recovery gives those gifts to people who work the programs that they're working to get well. And it's unfortunate as far as like the whole strong willed part. And oftentimes you'll hear people say like, you've always been so strong. And I just, I don't understand why you can't just stop. Which of course is just blaming and shaming altogether. But I think it indicates why it's not about being strong enough. Because if you actually take the time to listen to an addict or an alcoholic and as they share their story, you will hear those moments of desperation where they would do anything for the misery to stop. And they can't. They pray, they scream, they beg, they want the misery to stop. But they can't do it alone they can't there's no one strong enough to get rid of this illness it's you know it's threatening the diabetic and saying you need to drop your blood sugars (laughs) right it doesn't work that way there's no way this works through sheer strength alone and I think most addicts would tell you that we can come up with this beautiful plan of how I'm not going to. And somehow we land at the same place we always have, which is the using piece of it. And this is alcohol, drugs, gambling, whatever the addiction is, we create these beautiful safety plans for ourselves because it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to do this, this, and this, and then I'm going to be okay because I'm going to be motivated and I'm going to be strong about it. And then they find themselves drinking or back at the gambling machine or whatever it may be. And they're like, how did that happen? Maybe I am just weak. And and that's not what it's about at all. It's, 
if it was a matter of an addict or an alcohol wanting the misery to stop bad enough, we wouldn't need treatment facilities. Because even in the true lows and the throes of this addiction, there's moments of clarity that each person wants the misery to stop. They just don't know how to do it. So how does addiction being a brain disease affect or influence that treatment and recovery piece of it? Well, I think it's first off really important that there's good education around the disease model. It's essential for the internalization. And what I mean with that is I can intellectually understand something it's very different for me to internalize and accept it as my truth. Because it is a brain disease, I think there are different things that play a part in the relapse process. Drugs, of course, is going to be part of the relapse, right? Because it's that surge of dopamine. It's going to, so there's going to be triggers or cues in regards to temptations and because of the glutamate in our brains, it triggers that memory that, ooh, I could have this huge surge of dopamine if I decided to use. So that's part of it, and it's why it's recommended that people stay away from whatever their their triggers are. And, of course, being around drugs and alcohol is going to be one of them. But it might be, you know, it's the idea of people, places, and things. And stress is also one thing to be aware of because when we have excess stress in our life, it is actually the anti-reward in our brain. So we're not getting the feel-good chemicals of the dopamine, We're getting this yuckiness in our brains that is going to put us into kind of the danger zone as far as disrupting the balance of those brain chemicals. So when we are pushing down excessively on the brain chemicals, which is going to be the stress, our brain naturally wants to fight back to get to that homeostasis, which is going to be dangerous because the brain knows a surge of dopamine is where you get it from. So that's where stress management come, becomes a huge part of the recovery process. So we want to make sure that people are connected to each other, to other people who are sober and understand the hard work it takes. We want family members and the community to understand that you may need to change some family traditions or no longer have alcohol at every function and to be mindful of those things because most addicts and alcoholics will say, well, my family doesn't need to change. It's my problem. And it's, 
And part of it is, well, if it means that you're not going to have alcohol at the family barbecue, I think your family, or I hope your family would be more understanding of that because they want you sober for Christmas versus placing that temptation, those triggers and cues right there in front of you because we know it puts you at a higher risk. So the brain chemistry plays a big part in that. Now keep in mind, as far as the recovery process goes, only about 10% of that process is setting the substance aside. It's like 90% the other way in regards to changing the way you think, the way you behave, who you spend time with, how you cope with things, how you learn to live life differently. It's finding a new normal. And that's the hard part. As much as dif- as difficult as it is for someone to stop using, it's harder for them to stay stopped. Bringing it back to what we talked about in episodes one and two with emotional intelligence and self-regulation and coping skills. and Correct. That's exactly what it is. And when people don't have that insight and that self-awareness, they don't know what else to do. Yeah. And that lack of social connections, feeling like you don't have that connection with anyone. There's nobody that you can go to and ask for help or, or feeling like you can say, hey, I need help without that shame plays into that even more and kind of enhances those disorders that might be going on in the brain. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting, you know, I, like I said, I'm a visual person and I tend to use a lot of examples when I'm working with people and trying to help them understand certain things. And, um, you know, it's summertime, there's lots of weddings and many times clients would say, well, you know, I have a family member's wedding coming up. I can't not go. And we live in Wisconsin. So there's going to be an open bar. Correct. And I oftentimes suggest, well, the wedding is about the ceremony, about, you know, the commitment, the unity of this couple. That's what you are actually meant to, to take part in. So maybe go to that piece of it and don't go to the reception where there's an open bar all night. Yeah. You know, do something with another person in recovery maybe or something go to a function or a meeting or something that is going to help you because again, it's a reward disease. So if we do well for a little bit, then we're going to say, Oh, I did good. I should probably reward myself. Thank you, Sandy, for sharing all about the disease of addiction versus the choice of, of addiction. I know that I learned a lot and I hope that our listeners learned a lot too. Thank you. I'm so happy that I could share some things with the people that are listening. And I hope people start embracing this as an illness and not as a moral failing.